Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Today on Power Hour, we're going to have back one of my favorite guests ever, and that is Robert Zubrin, author of the book, The Merchants of Despair. Actually, Merchants of Despair, no the. There is a the in the moral case for fossil fuels. Both of those books definitely read, order on Amazon now, before you continue listening. Anyway, in that book, Robert has so many fascinating things about what he calls the anti-humanist movement and what I've started calling the anti-humanist movement as well and how it opposes all kinds of different realms of technology not just energy technology but agri- agricultural technology aquacultural technology that's basically farming in water uh, disease prevention technology and and others and in the course of doing that he also explains the positive of what are all the opportunities in these realms that are being held back. So I've been thinking a lot lately about how to get people clear on how many amazing opportunities there are in the world where we can transform nature to make human progress, but we don't know about those opportunities because we have an anti-human, anti-progress mentality that says that transforming nature, which is really the essence of human survival, is evil. So I really wanted to bring on Robert to learn a lot myself and, and hopefully to teach all of you a lot about what are the opportunities for human progress through transforming nature and what's in the way and what we can do about it. So we're going to have Robert Zubrin on. Do not miss it. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined once again by Robert Zubrin, president of Pioneer Energy and of the Mars Society. Robert, welcome back to Power Hour. Uh, Thanks for having me. All right. Last time we talked about Merchants of Despair, one of my favorite books. And today we're going to talk about a subject that's covered in Merchants of Despair, uh, which is all of the amazing potential for human progress that's being held back by the anti-humanists. But I really want to talk about the, the potential for progress because that really excited me when I read the book. And I thought the world really needs to know more about this in part so it knows what's at stake uh, in, in fighting the bad guys, the merchants of despair. So we're going to take a couple of areas. The first one I want to talk about is aquaculture. Because aquaculture is not something that was on my radar at all before I read your book. And yet now it's one of the areas that most excites me. So first of all, what is aquaculture and what kind of potential does it have for human life? Okay, well, there's, there's two uh, different issues here, which are both interesting. One is aquaculture and the other is mariculture, okay? Um, and uh, aquaculture actually exists. Uh, and in fact, if you go to the supermarket right now, you'll see that a substantial fraction of the fish there is now farm-raised. Uh, this was not the case 20 years ago. Um, uh, it remains the case today that 
of all the things that all the foods that we eat, it's only wild caught fish that have not been genetically modified by people. That is everything else is, uh, but wild caught fish are not. But the uh, uh, but mariculture is raising fish in ponds, lakes, and so forth in captive conditions. Um, mariculture would be farming the ocean itself. Um, so while aquaculture has taken off, mariculture has just begun. Now, there was a very interesting experiment that was done about uh, two years ago in the Pacific Northwest where uh, an entrepreneur um, was hired by an Indian tribe to take uh, iron sulfite and dump it into an area in the um, Northeast Pacific um, and artificially initiate a plankton bloom, which then created uh, greatly improved food stocks for young salmon. And what happened was the, uh, the salmon return a year later was up like 400%. This project was denounced by uh, global warming um, uh, activists uh, because they were saying that he was undermining the case for carbon controls because in the process of doing this, a great deal of carbon had been captured out of the atmosphere and that was ruining their crisis. But uh, did, in they, fact, did they actually, in what form did they say that? Because it sounds like it would be way too transparent if they were blatant about it. Well, some of them actually said exactly that. Some of them exactly said that this is, is bad because he's making people think that we don't need carpet controls. Okay? And what he was doing was reviving the salmon catch while reducing uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, and you would think that uh, the people on the, the left would love this because he was doing this on behalf of and to the benefit of Native Americans. Um, and yet they were incensed and, in fact, uh, de demanded prosecution, all sorts of things. Uh, and, um, but the, the project was an unqualified and, and massive success. NASA um, imaging showed a massive plankton bloom had been uh, 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 initiated by them and really at a very low expense. Um, and then what followed was that the young salmon, the baby salmon, had plenty of plankton to eat, so they grew fast, and they much more of them made it to maturity to, uh, with, therefore, a larger population available for harvesting. That, that is Now, awesome. here's the... Yeah, no, look, here's the thing, okay? Land was not a resource until people learned how to farm, okay? Land was just this thing you had to travel over in order to catch game. But it itself was not a resource. Land became a resource when people developed farming, and then it has become a progressively more bountiful resource as people improved farming technique with the development of irrigation, fertilization, you know, crop rotation, uh, 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 improved crop strains, and now genetic modified crops. Okay, that we have, you know, in. 1947, the American average was 33 bushels an acre of corn. Now it's 150. Um, once upon a time, it was much less than 33. So we have multiplied, we have turned land from a non-resource into a resource. Similarly, the ocean right now is a minimal resource. 
um, you can go there and you can catch some fish out of it. But in fact, we can farm the ocean. We can greatly increase its productivity just as we have greatly increased the productivity of the land. And this is three quarters of the Earth's surface we're talking about. Most of the ocean is a complete desert. Okay, there are only small areas of the ocean that are actually productive of life, where there are uh, nutrients either being dumped into the ocean by rivers or upwelling due to hydrothermal phenomenon, taking nutrients from the bottom and circulating them up into the top layers of the ocean where photosynthesis can occur. We can take vast areas of the ocean that right now are, are complete deserts and, and make them biologically productive. We could multiply uh, the amount of life in the ocean 10, perhaps 100 times by farming the ocean. And, uh, you know, this is one of the Earth's greatest potential resources. Right now, it's a limited resource. We can vastly expand it. I just have to say that is one of the coolest things anyone has ever said on this show. I mean, it's, I never thought of it that way as a desert. Um, I mean, I think the, the mentality, I know the mentality we're taught to think of both land and ocean with is what I call the perfect planet premise, which is that the planet absent human beings is in this perfect state and that all we do is ruin it by stealing its resources and by contaminating uh, its purity. And so the only things people can think of that we do to our environment uh, are bad. Uh, but I, and, and so if you notice with the global warming issue, all people say about the ocean is, oh, we're quote, acidifying it, which is a whole issue unto itself. But it doesn't even occur to people that, hey, maybe the ocean can be better. Maybe it can be way mm -hmm. better and it can be way better because of us and, and primarily for us. But there will be lots of living creatures who exist who wouldn't otherwise exist. So certainly, were, if they had the capacity to complain, they would have less than nothing to complain about. Well, that's exactly so. We have taken deserts on land and made them bloom. We can make the deserts of the ocean bloom. So with the, the deserts of the ocean, I'm, I'm really curious in elaboration on that. Are there maps or statistics that kind of show where the pockets of life are? Because I think people just think, oh, the entire ocean is just full of the real equivalent of finding Nemo. No. Uh, well, yeah, there certainly are such things. Uh, and uh, I mean, look, there are parts of the ocean that are famously productive, like the Grand Banks. Uh, you know, and in general, the continental shelves, river deltas, and so forth are going to be productive. The open ocean is not productive. So what is the, what constitutes the open ocean? Well, that is the vast majority of the ocean away from the continents. So is it just like, is there, are there statistics like this many fish or life forms per cubic mile or something? Yeah, or the primary productivity. Uh, of the region of the ocean. That is, in other words, how much plankton is created per day, um, the, you know, and, and so forth, and therefore, which then provides the trophic level, the, the, the food base for larger, you know, for minnows and then, the, for, then for larger fish and so forth. Um, yes, there are absolutely studies of, of uh, marine productivity, and they vary by many orders of magnitude from the most productive to the least productive regions of, of the world's oceans. Yeah, that's just, that's just completely fascinating. And it's one of those points that once you think about it, it's of course, but the bias that we have, the anti-humanism is just sort of, oh, it must 
there must be this flourishing life everywhere except where we are. But it sounds like the places where we are are the places where the nearby oceans are most productive. Uh, yeah. Um, now, I mean, look, there are parts of the ocean that are naturally productive. Obviously, there were parts of the ocean that were naturally productive before there were people. But there's also the vast majority of the ocean is naturally unproductive, but could be made productive by human engineering introducing into those areas um, the phenomena that make the productive areas productive. So what is the definition of mariculture? Well, mariculture would be, uh, I mean, in particular, uh, farming the ocean, the saltwater ocean. Um, and, and to me, the, where I draw the distinction between mariculture and aquaculture is that it is in the open ocean, that it is not in a captive area, such as even a bay of the ocean that might be fenced off. Okay? Um, but I'm talking about... Um, the open sea. Another example of mariculture uh, would be genetic engineering of fish that can be grown in fisheries and then released into the open sea. So, for example, in my book, Merchants of Despair, I have photographs of salmon, um, both natural salmon and salmon of a genetically engineered stream that was released from uh, a hatchery, and it goes out into the ocean, and it grows to be like three times as big uh, within the same amount of time as the uh, uh, original strain. This is very similar to what we've done with animals. I mean, most of our farm animals uh, have been uh, bred over time by humans from original ancestors that were much less attractive uh, as domesticated animals, much less, you know, in other words, the hens now produce eggs every day and so forth. Birds in nature don't produce eggs every day. Um, you know, and... and and so on. Uh, so even, uh, you know, there's a variety of animals. I mean, uh, sheep, certain kinds of cattle that you can release onto an open range and uh, let them be, let them carry on their lives there, and then you can harvest their wool or their meat or what have you. Um, but the, the, with much greater productivity than you could if you were uh, uh, an early human hunting such animals or their distant ancestors that might have existed on that plane. Uh, so similarly, we can breed varieties of fish and release them into the open ocean, and then when we harvest them, get a much bigger return uh, than we would from uh, simply relying on uh, their original types. If, if you're operating in the open ocean, how do you deal with, well, just containing or... or uh, you know, with, in, in a fixed area, it's easy to see how you'd grow the fish and then you can harvest them uh, from both a practical perspective and a rights perspective. I don't quite get how, a pra from a practical perspective, and particularly from a rights perspective, you you would practice mariculture. Not that you couldn't, but I just don't know the, the legal framework for something like that. Well, uh, for example, in the case uh, that we're discussing, um, a very limited effort by this one tribe did increase the salmon return for the entire Pacific Northwest. So you could say that those people were paying for something that a lot of other people, including them, benefited from. Uh, I mean, I think if we wanted to do this on a larger scale, it would pay for uh, groups of fishing companies to get together and say, okay, 
let's each put in, you know, 5% of the required amount to do this, and we will do this um, as a consortium and greatly increase the salmon catch and actually other kinds of catches as well because if you increase the plant, a lot of fish can benefit um, uh, in our area. Uh, that's one way to do it. The, um, now, the, also with salmon, um, what you have is they come back on their own. Uh, so you could release them from a, um, a hatchery uh, on, in your river, and those salmon will come back to your river. That's what, uh, what they'll do. Um, so while some people could catch them in the open sea, the easiest place to catch them is when they're just coming right back up the river. Uh, to to spawn, mm. um, so uh, so there's ways to do this, uh, and uh, yes, um, you know it, it will be a thing that uh, people who uh, don't invest at all in it will benefit from as well. But I think the return to those who do it and who follow up systematically can be high enough that uh, people will be motivated to undertake such things. So how how fast is progress in this realm right now? Well, uh, in genetic engineering, it's pretty fast. Uh, the in terms of open sea mariculture, uh, it's not because of the various uh, environmental laws and uh, that were invoked, for instance, in this case against uh, open sea dumping uh, and so forth, and that needs to be straightened out so that uh, people can do this legally. This thing um, was, according to some people, illegal, what they did, and, and, and there was uh, uh, prosecutorial action initiated against those involved. Um, uh, but there shouldn't have been any prosecution because these people did great work on behalf of the, the fish, on the fishermen, the public, in the environment. So if we could have in this upcoming election, you know, an, an industry liberation policy that, that improved areas like this, what should the aquaculture slash mariculture policy be? Well, I think that there should be um, a simple permitting process that would allow people to apply to do this with very uh, uh, clear rules in order to distinguish between people that were dumping toxic waste and people who were dumping stuff designed to promote uh, maritime productivity. And uh, that they should be allowed to go forward without uh, um, fear of repercussions. I like it. It just occurred to me that it strikes me that it's, you mentioned, you mentioned the using CO2 from the atmosphere uh, for the algae bloom. It, it, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the future, some future generation of anti-humanists talks about atmospheric CO2 as a finite resource and accuses us of squandering it if we figure out how to make <laughs> things more. I'm serious. That, that, could, that, could be, that could be. I mean, look, at one time, the anti-humanists said that the problem was that we were running out of fossil fuels. Now they say the problem is, is there are too much fossil fuels available and we have to be stopped from using them. Well, often they say that the same thing at the same, both at the same time. Yes. <laughs> but in both cases, statism is, is the cure. That, that never changes. Absolutely not. 
It's the cure for global warming. It's the cure for global cooling. It's the cure for climate change, and it's the cure for climate stagnation. <laughs> climate, uh, climate, climate stagnation, climate non-change. What, what the rest of us allegedly believe in is climate non-change. Uh, okay, so that's really fascinating on aquaculture now, and, and mariculture, and that's an important distinction that I didn't have in mind. Uh, now I want to talk about agriculture, which is something that, that people are run into all the time if they ever go to a Whole Foods or anywhere else where everyone brags about non-GMO and organic and this and that. But let's talk about it from a positive perspective. What, what are, because right now we have a realm, agriculture, where technology is considered a bad thing, which is a bad sign for a field when the application of technology is something that we're against. But how, how is technology helping right now and what could technology be helping for the future in terms of the goal of having a nourished world? Well, I mean, look, um, I believe in the colonial times, 90% of Americans were farmers or certainly were living in farm communities. Perhaps, uh, you know, most of the 90% were actually farmers. Some might have been blacksmiths or others that uh, helped the farmers. But uh, it, clearly the majority of people were farmers and, and perhaps as much as 90%. Um, that means that to feed 100% of the people, 90% of them had to be farmers. Okay, that's how limited the productivity was. The today, uh, 2% of Americans are farmers. So one farmer, instead of feeding 1.1 people, is feeding 50 people. And in addition, of course, we're producing a surplus that feeds people beyond the United States. So this is a result of technology. This has greatly multiplied what any person engaged in agriculture can do. And this is why, um, you know, all the Malthusian forecasts that as the world's population increased, we would run out of food, were proven totally false, because as the world's population increased, technology increased, and multiplied uh, not only farm products, but all sorts of other products beyond the wildest dreams of Malthus and his followers. So that in addition to having enough food today, people can have iPhones and, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and vacations in the Caribbean and, you know, uh, to say nothing of books and televisions and, and, and all sorts of other things and that, that they have and automobiles and so on. Um, so, what we've done with technology is not only increase the return of farming such that the much smaller number of people who have to do farming can feed the whole world and much more generously than they could when almost everyone was a farmer. Uh, but in addition, those other 50 people are engaged in making all kinds of stuff, including not merely stuff that helps the farmer, some of it does, tractors and fertilizers and things, but uh, but stuff that enriches life in, you know, innumerable dimensions. So it's all about technology. And where does technology come from? It comes from people, okay? And the more people you have and the better educated they are and the freer they are, the more inventions there's going to be and the more progress there's going to be and the faster the rate of rise of living standards is going to be. So now we have in so people some people have at least sort of accepted that things like mechanization and agriculture 
are good, although there is a just shocking hostility toward that even. But what people say is, well, we need to draw the line at genetic modification. Now, now in your book and in your comments earlier, you indicated that um, we've been genetically modifying things in, in crude ways uh, for tens of thousands of years, and, and we're just getting better and better at it. Uh, so what are some of the ways now or in the recent past that we're getting better at modifying uh, different kinds of foodstuffs to improve human life and, and to save many lives? Okay. Well, first of all, just parenthetically, everything we eat except for wild-caught fish has been genetically modified by people, and everything we eat, without exception, has been genetically modified since the origin of the Earth and of the various species. And to believe otherwise is to be a creationist um, who thinks that the world was created in a certain way with all species as they are, and they're, you know, I mean, it's nonsense. Now, the... the, the uh, Wait, sorry, can, now, you, can you elaborate on the second part of that I'm particularly interested in, because I, I haven't heard it as often, just the, the point that, I assume you, you mean by the process uh, of evolution that everything is quote yes, genetically that's modified. Yes, right. that is, that is, that's right. That is in, to, to, to say that you're against genetic modification is to say that you're against evolution. That not only do you not believe in it, but you think it should be forbidden. <laughs> okay. Um, you know... And the, 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 because everything is genetically modified. Now, things can be genetically modified by accident, as it were, that is to say, independent of human purpose. Uh, it can be genetically modified by people without a complete knowledge of what they are doing, and therefore, uh, with some changes being purposeful and some accidental. And it can be modified by people with a more complete knowledge and control of what they are doing. Okay? All of these kinds of things have occurred, okay? Now, it should be clear that when things are simply genetically modified by nature, um, there is no particular guarantee that such alterations are going to be beneficial to humans. Um, plants can evolve that are poisonous, um, and so forth, and many have. Uh, when humans engage in genetic modification, there is a greater chance that the uh, humans will benefit because we're having a voice in what happens. Um, and to the extent we have greater control, we have a greater voice. And so, you know, throughout history, people have engaged in genetic modification. I mean, the, 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 one of the most important inventions of early humans was the dog. Okay? We took wolves, our enemies, and we turned them into dogs, our friends. And this was a non-trivial innovation in that we took things that were killing us and we turned them into things that were defending us. We turned them into an early warning system that could guard a camp of sleeping humans against surprise attack by other humans or by animals. We they assistance to us hunt so that we could track game over miles and greatly increase our ability to feed ourselves and, if necessary, to directly use their valor in defending us in case of attack. So this was one of the main things that turned humans from people that had to fear giant cats to people who could hunt giant cats and have a secure life. Um, you know, but what is that? That was genetic modification. 
genetic modification was involved in taking all these different animals, which gave us a much more secure economic base, sheep and cattle, um, chickens, goats, um, and taking them from wild animals that would run away from us into animals that would hang around and to be increasingly productive in the case, of course, of chickens laying eggs every day, giving us a source of protein, uh, you know, basically immediately and, and reliably without having to depend upon the chance of the hunt. The, the, you know, and of course, we genetically modified our, our plants, the, the kind of corn we eat today, if you can compare that to the original species of corn, the tiny ears of corn, you know, like two inches long compared to these you know, 10-inch, 12-inch long ears of corn that you get now, vastly more food in them. Uh, tomatoes. You know, in the early 1800s, you could make a living in the United States eating tomatoes on a bet in front of a crowd because they were frequently toxic and you would could die from eating a tomato. Okay, now they, t- there's no question that tomatoes are safe to eat. You don't consider yourself a daredevil when you buy tomatoes at the supermarket. Um... And that is because we, we have altered them. And, uh, and of course, we, we've made the crops vastly more productive. Uh, you know, last year, the state of Iowa alone grew more corn than the entire United States did in 1947, and we were an agricultural giant already in 1947. Um, so this is our skills. Now, if you take a look at the techniques of crop breeding, uh, originally, it was essentially random and simply selecting things that came along uh, that l- were a little better. Later on, people got the idea that if you mated two tall individuals of plants, that there was a, a better chance that the uh, offspring would be tall. They didn't know exactly why, but it seemed to make sense, um, and they did it. Um, and eventually people actually began to understand genetics and they could do that better. Uh, later on in the 20th century, they did things where they understood that new traits could be induced by mutations. So they would take a bunch of seeds and impose, expose it to radiation, and they'd spark a whole set of mutations, most of which would be harmful, but a few random ones would be very helpful, and they'd just pick those out and breed them. Um, and this would therefore accelerate the rate of evolution in our favor, and then we would take advantage of it through aggressive selective breeding. But now we can actually look at the genes ourselves and take this trait from this one and this trait from that one and assemble this thing by design and get plants that are much more productive and with new traits. For instance, we can create strains of rice that have vitamin A in them, which rice ordinarily does not. And that means this is the golden rice. That uh, people, especially poor people, who the poorest people in the world, their diets are dominated by cereals. If you're a little richer, you get fruits and vegetables. If you're richer than that, you get meat. Um, the poorest people eat cereals, uh, which are deficient in many vitamins. We can create strains of these crops that have vitamins in them and thus eliminate vitamin deficiency diseases from the poorest people of the earth simply by transferring the desired traits into these crops. Why should anyone be against that? It's outrageous. I have a question, which is sort of a weird question, which is how did you learn all this stuff? I mean, because we're in a culture that just doesn't teach anyone any of the ways in which 
human ingenuity and human transformation of nature improves human life, and yet you have this quite comprehensive knowledge about it. So how did you get that? I'm not exactly sure. I mean, certainly there are many people around who know many of these examples. Um, in my own personal history, I was originally a nuclear engineer, and uh, way back when I would debate people from the Sierra Club, and uh, you know, and these people, they are against fossil fuels, and uh, you know, I say, look, we don't want fossil fuels because they're smoking up the atmosphere, and we're going to run out of it. So they say, well, look, here's nuclear energy. There's no smoke and you're never going to run out. And they say, we don't want that. You know, we hate that. And this mystified me and many of my colleagues. Why should they be against this? This thing is the solution to all the problems that they're citing. And, the, and finally, after thinking it over for a while, I realized what the answer was. They hated nuclear energy because it was solving a problem they needed to have. And then I started looking at these other things because I started running into people whose, for example, uh, innovations in genetically modified crops or pesticides or uh, new ways to acquire fossil fuels like fracking. But these people were running into exactly the same kind of opposition. And they would say, why are you against genetic uh, modification of crops that, for example, cotton that produces its own pesticide so you don't have to spray it? Okay, you're complaining about spraying pesticides. This eliminates that need. And they would be furiously against it. They were more against it than they were against spraying pesticides. And why? Because it was solving a problem they needed to have. Okay, and it became apparent to me that what these anti-humanists were about was the problem, not the solution. They were about saying, here's a problem. It's out of control. It's got to be put under control. Put us in control. Okay. And the last thing they wanted was a positive solution to any of this. Just like this example of these people who were farming the ocean, this incensed the global warmest activists because it was solving a problem they needed to have. In terms of the, uh, I can't say anything about that. Uh, I mean, except I think it's clearly true. Uh, in terms of the, the all the positive examples, because yeah, you do hear some of these somewhere, but you don't, I mean, I don't know of any book um, that's on the level of Merchants of Despair in terms of, in terms of compiling all of these amazing transformative technologies. Are there other books that you would recommend that, that talk about the stories in different fields? Because I, I really want to encourage people to study and, and ultimately to write about this, because I think once people learn these stories, like about mariculture, they get really excited and it helps, it helps expose the true identity of the anti-humanists because people can believe oh in one realm fossil fuels they really care about co2 because it's allegedly dangerous but if they see it over and over and over it's clear that again they want there to be a problem with human beings okay well there's this really good book called the moral case for fossil fuels you might have heard of it <laughs> yeah um that's one and if you want an older book uh, there's The Health Hazards of Not Going Nuclear by Dr. Peter Beckman, who unfortunately is deceased. But this is a really great book um, which goes through how uh, nuclear power was solving all these problems that the environmentalists were raising. This was the 1970s. And, and that shutting it was exasperating these problems. Um, 
And, of course, we have the same thing right now with genetically modified foods today. Um, the, uh, and uh, another book that I would strongly recommend is a book by a man called Julian Simon called The Ultimate Resource, which was subsequently published, uh, Ultimate Resource 2, is actually easier to get. Um, and that really goes through the fundamental issue here, um, where... Uh, you you get to understand that resources are created by people, and the idea that and therefore the ultimate resource is people. Okay, that's the thesis, and it's very convincingly laid out by Julian Simon, and that's why the fundamental anti-human thesis that there's resources and there's people, and people are using up the resources, and therefore people need to be controlled and contained and reduced in their level of freedom and activity is completely the opposite of the truth. Well, I love all of those books. Uh, unfortunately, I've read them repeatedly, so I'm not. Well, I'll read them again. I think people on this show have have heard of those. I'm. I'm. I would definitely recommend people reread *Merchants of Despair* uh, for these kinds of articles. I was just scanning it today, and there's just so much interesting stuff. But as I mentioned to you before the call, it's it's really a project of mine to make people aware of all of these realms uh, of technological opportunity, not not just uh, energy and fossil fuels, which has been my my focus over the past couple of years. What about, um, I haven't asked you about this before, so maybe it's not your own, but I'm curious about the realm of, of chemistry, because the word chemical has now become a pejorative, you know, even though everything is a chemical. Uh, so molecules yeah. are now bad, uh, apparently, as mm -hmm. such. And, you know, uh, obviously. Well, all bad things are made of molecules. <laughs> yeah. Well, all, in their view, all bad <laughs> things are made by man. Uh, so that that's but <laughs> well, actually, that's not true. There are plenty of bad things that are not made by man. But in all their in their view, things, yeah, that's true. All, yeah, all bad things are made. Are made yes, of that's, made yes. Yeah, that's that's true. I can't. Uh, I guess I can't dispute that. Um, so, but can you talk about just the realm of uh, of chemistry and what I, I like to call molecular manipulation, where you've got the green movement against that as well. Uh, I'm curious what, what the opportunities are there and what some of the obstacles are there. Well, that's an interesting thing. I mean, of course, um, a variety of chemicals uh, exist in nature, and most of them are uh, quite benign and, and, and helpful. Um, some of them obviously can, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, people know better than to you know, eat sand. Uh, you know, every chemical has its place, right? Well, people, okay, all right, well, we had combustion for quite a while, but in terms of creating molecules that did not exist in nature at all, I think it really only began in a serious way, well, other than in terms of smelting of metals and creation of glass, uh, well, okay, I'm going to have to take it back. We've been doing chemistry for a while. Uh, we've, been do we've been doing chemistry since the Bronze Age. Um, and uh, we create metallic metals, copper, brass, bronze. Iron was a huge one. The ability to, uh, because uh, bronze uh, requires tin, which is geochemically rare and had to be transported long distances. Uh, for instance, the reason why Britain has its name is it uh, actually refers to tin, uh, which 
it was the Tin Islands, and it was Whoa. the source of tin for the Mediterranean really? world. Yeah, uh, the Phoenicians brought it in, um, but yeah, that but iron, on the other hand, is widely available, and once uh, 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 iron could be made, um, metals became far more common, and so there's a tremendous leap in in civilization from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, and uh, there's a lot that could be said about that. Uh, the, 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 but, okay, and then glass, of course, uh, took a while to develop, and especially clear glass. We also had ceramics um, for quite a while. Uh, so we've been doing chemistry for a while. Uh, chemistry became decisive in warfare, both in terms of things like iron and then later gunpowder. Um, but in terms of deliberate chemistry, now to return, uh, we're talking about the 19th century, and we're talking about uh, uh, things like the creation of fertilizers, chemicals. Um, a lot of this was done in Germany. Germany became kind of famous for its chemists and chemical industry. Um, this started multiplying agricultural productivity. Uh, also, chemistry became necessary for electricity to make things like batteries um, and uh, and so forth. Uh, the, 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 and then, well, any number of things. Uh, you look around the room you're in, you're going to see all kinds of things that uh, the materials were made through chemical synthesis. Uh, and, of course, I mean, the advance has here has been remarkable. I mean, uh, I was recently in an Old West antique store. I live in Colorado, and this was a real one. And everything in there was from the age of the pioneers. And everything in there was made of a rather narrow set of materials. They had wood, of course. They had iron and some carbon steel. They had brass and copper. They had uh, uh, glass, um, uh, leather. Um, uh, I think that's about it. Um, you go into Target, and you will see things made of those materials. Okay, and they also had natural fabrics, cotton and wool. Okay, you go into Target, you'll see things made of, of those materials for sure, but you'll also see things made of... Um, artificial fabrics, you'll see things made of stainless steel, you'll see things made of aluminum, you will not find anything made of aluminum in the Old West antique store, nothing, uh, even though it's the, I think, the, the, the second most common uh, element in the Earth's crust, okay, it was unknown to the pioneers. Um, you'll see, of course, plastics, uh, fiberglass, uh, I mean, and of course, devices that use silicon, um, in other words, the very uh, materials of our civilization literally did not exist 150 years ago. We created all these materials. Um, these, are, these resources were all invented through human ingenuity, and in particular, uh, in significant part, through the subset of human ingenuity known as the art and science of chemistry. Well, you know, and this is to say nothing of, of, of the cars you know, in the lot, the tanks filled with gasoline, which, of course, does not exist in nature, um, you know, and uh, perhaps in some places, 
uh, electricity supplied by uranium, which, you know, I mean, was obviously unknown 150 years ago, or its potential was certainly unknown 150 years ago, what it could do. So it's, that's so, it's so great to realize how much stuff is chemistry or molecular manipulation that we now take for granted, but that was unknown. 150 years ago, I find it very sad when I go to stores and I see the whole focus of, of a lot of the materials industry anyway, being how can we use more primitive materials in everything. So for example, uh, there's a, a local store in Southern California that used to be called Albertsons and has been renamed Hagen or taken over, which I guess is supposed to sound sophisticated. And they're always talking about how you know, we're bringing in more organics and less GMO and this kind of thing. So it's in a sort of transition between a, a grocery store that people can afford and then Whole Foods. And what's interesting is that, you know, they want to hide from you the fact that you can get a plastic bag, but I always ask for a plastic bag. And, you know, because the paper bag always breaks. And the plastic bag, I was just holding one the other day, and this thing can hold so much in it. It's just chemically so sophisticated and superior, and yet that's considered evil. And Whole Foods won't even let you do it. And at Whole Foods, to even ask for a bag and not to have brought your own, you know, gunk-filled bacteria trap uh, is considered bad. So it's just, it's just so bad to see how we've gone from the kinds of innovations and the kind of spirit that, that made them possible to this anti-technology mindset where we just take everything for granted and then try to do it in a more primitive way. Yeah, sure. And uh, one thing I find particularly objectionable about the Whole Foods cult is its emphasis on local production, okay, local, so that we don't have to buy food from those foreigners and Mexicans and Africans. And, I mean, hello. Uh, if you say you want to boycott the farmers of the rest of the world, uh, what, is, what does that make you? That's a good angle. That's a good angle to, uh, to use. And it's just an, another sign of primitivism because it used to be considered uh, Pierre Durocher, who works with us, who wrote The Locavores Dilemma, that points out that it used to be considered sophisticated to get you know, wine from other places and spices from other places and generally the idea of the division of labor including, you know, the division of of different kinds of land that serves different purposes where you can, you know, you can get the best coffee in the world and have it be fresh if you, if you like coffee. Mm -hmm. And wh whereas now I'm supposed to be restricted to whatever the heck they can grow in the, near the desert that I live in. That's, that's right. the ideal and then the other offensive thing is that in, they whole foods you know, or cult foods, as I sometimes call it, uh, you know, the, the premise in people's mind is, oh, well, it's, it's green food. It doesn't impact nature. Therefore, it's healthy. So you walk in and you see like, oh, my gosh, we've got this amazing, healthy local food. And it's just a bunch of, you know, cinnamon rolls and pastries. So people are going to get themselves diabetes and feel like they're being healthy because they equate health with non-technology. Well, sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's ridiculous. And, but furthermore, also, I mean, it's got to be realized that this global food market that we have, which Whole Foods says should not exist, uh, is one of the greatest accomplishments of humanity. It, not merely in that it affords each of us the variety of getting kiwis from New Zealand and wine from France and so forth and, and different kinds of foods from far away all different times of the year, but that's great. 
But beyond that, what it has done is eliminated the possibility of famine. There is no such thing as famine anymore. Food is available from all over. If the crop should fail in some country, there's food available for that country everywhere else. Now, they, people can starve if they have no money, okay, but they will, no one on this planet now ever needs to starve because of a local crop failure. Yeah, and that that is, is so true. And if with the stats I, I explored for Mortal Case for Fossil Fuels, you have these amazing stats about drought-related deaths being down over 99% over the decades and, and no recorded U.S. drought-related deaths in something like the last eight years. And and so even, mm-hmm. even what a drought means has changed because a drought is, you know, less less water than you expect, but usually, but the reason we care about it is because of famine. And yet, if you eliminate famine, in a sense, drought ceases to exist. And then, of course, if you use technology to move water, then it becomes particularly uh, irrelevant. Unfortunately, if you live in California, like I do, you know, we are anti-technology about many things, including mm-hmm. water. Sure. Um, all right. Well, that is, I think we got an amazing amount of great material in, in today. Uh, I really appreciate, appreciate you coming on. Where can listeners learn more about your work or, or see your work? Well, uh, first of all, Merchants of Despair has a website, merchantsofdespair.com. So uh, they could also buy the book. It's available at Amazon, uh, Merchants of Despair. Um, And, of course, another book that I'm known for is The Case for Mars, because uh, I think that ultimately, uh, while we can greatly expand the resources that can be producible from the Earth, that the ultimate resource or the ultimate raw materials for human ingenuity is the universe and that uh, we are not limited uh, to one planet and that it is only human creativity that sets the bounds of our existence and the first stop on that trek to uh, the unbounded future is, is Mars. It's the closest planet that has on it all the raw materials needed uh, to support life and technology and therefore human civilization and uh, so I have another book called The Case for Mars. And so between Merchants of Despair and The Case for Mars, people can get a sense of, uh, of my views. Great. Well, I have not even read The Case for Mars. And, and that's an, it's interesting because that's an area that I, I haven't been historically as motivated by. So I'm, I'm really fascinated to read it and, and to, okay. to hear how your perspective applies to that. Okay. Now, I have another book as well. Uh, which is partially out of date. It's called Energy Victory, um, and um, it's uh, about basically how to break OPEC, um, and it was through uh, fuel choice that is uh, predominantly uh, making it possible for cars to run on methanol, and this, at least for now, is is not needed because we have uh, the oil cartel has been broken by another route, um, which has been the shale revolution. However, there's a lot of material in that book that I think people will find worth reading, um, including material about the role of of oil and thus fuel in uh, global affairs, World War II, uh, many other things, and also the issues of global warming and and human progress. So um, that's another one as well, although parts of it are out of date. Got it. All right, Robert, thanks so much for being on. 
All right. Thank you. Thanks again to Robert Zubrin for being on the program. Uh, the books he mentioned, by the way, uh, are great. Merchants of Despair, definitely read. You can read my book review online. I think it's on masterresource.org, but if you search Alex Epstein, Merchants of Despair, uh, that's uh, you'll, you'll find it. Uh, also, he recommended The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. I won't argue with that. And he also wrote a, a great review of that. So if you search Robert Zubrin, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, you'll find his review, which was posted on National Review online. The Health Hazards of Not Going Nuclear uh, by, uh, by Beckman is one of the best energy books ever written, if not the best. Beckman is the, Peter Beckman is the single person who taught me the most about energy, not not live, unfortunately, because he, he died in 1993, uh, but through his old newsletter, Access to Energy, which I, I went through almost the complete archives of from 73 to 93, and that, that really allowed me to learn energy, uh, learn about energy really, really quickly. And then he also mentioned The Ultimate Resource by Julian Simon, which is certainly must-reading, definitely not out of date, even though it was the last published a couple decades ago. I haven't read the book on Mars. I'm really interested to read that. And the book Energy Victory is interesting because that is a place where um, I disagree with several things that Robert says. So that might be a discussion for uh, for a future uh, a future episode. But there is a lot of interesting content in his in that book. And as you might imagine, just from hearing him, I mean, I just I think it's so cool how much he knows, how great his abstract understanding of progress is, and how many great examples he has at the ready. So. I just feel like, God, I could have that guy on every week and just ask him questions. And who knows, maybe we'll find a way uh, to do that. It's sort of like Pierre de Rocher, who recently became a senior fellow at CIP. It's just super fun to have on. I, I think a good good selection uh, criterion for whether we bring on people as senior fellows is, do I have an infinite supply of questions that I'd love to hear their answers to? So, so far, we've got Eric Dennis, we've got Pierre we're uh, we're in really really good shape. So we covered basically everything I wanted to. All I'll say is that we're going to do a lot more in these realms, a lot more in the general realm uh, of of human progress and and the alternative of humanism, maximizing human well-being versus anti-humanism, minimizing human impact on the planet. I think it's just such a profoundly important. Uh, distinction, and I think the the humanist philosophy really illuminates so many of the concerns and controversies and opportunities that we have today. So stay tuned for more of that. All right. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at industrialprogress.com. Uh, get the moral case for fossil fuels at moralcaseforfossilfuels.com. You can get the book there. You can buy it in bulk. You can get it for a student, or you can just uh, wade into it by getting the first chapter for free. Uh, social media: follow us. I love fossil fuels. Uh, Alex Epstein on both Facebook and Twitter, and actually, I am also on Instagram as Alex Epstein22. Not too popular there yet compared to the others. I think I. I, you know, sometimes I get 20 or 30 likes, which uh, the teenagers I know make fun of me for. But uh, I think I think we'll start, you know, we'll start uh, building that up too. I think Instagram is pretty cool, and we've started to create more images lately, and, and there'll definitely be more of that to come. So that's all we have for this week. I'm glad we've been able to record several of these in a row. I think we're back on a weekly schedule. 
no 100% promises, but our team right now is getting good at booking the guests and we're finding time on my schedule to interview them. So um, give me some feedback again, alex at industrialprogress.net. Let me know what you think of the resurrected power hour. So I'll talk to you next time. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.